welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, awesome episode I've got for you today. My guest is Nada Alagband, and he is the founder and CEO of Ampersand Health. And they create clinically validated behavioral science-based digital therapeutics for complex long-term conditions including inflammatory diseases and rare diseases. So Amazon Health is a social purpose company. Their primary objective is to improve the health and quality of life of patients with inflammatory conditions like Crohn's, colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, and atopic dermatitis. They work with a load of different subject matter experts, clinicians, patient groups, industry, all that sort of stuff to develop their kind of unique therapeutic programs. They focus on lifestyle, they've got an app which uses behavioral science, data science to support improvements in sleep, mental health, adherence, all the stuff that's kind of holistic care for those with those sorts of conditions. They work with the NHS and Nada's got plenty to say on that in the episode. They are helping with asynchronous communication. You might remember Lloyd from Zesty a few episodes ago. So uh, Ampersand are doing similar with asynchronous communication, helping the uh, treatment of those long-term inflammatory conditions. They have got a load of different awards, part of Accelerators, PwC, London. they won Tank Force 19, picked up HSJ awards, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, plenty in this one to hear from Nada. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Zanada, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning? Great, thanks, James. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Nada? I'm speaking to you from our office, actually, our new office in uh, Queen's Park, about 100 metres from my house, which is wildly convenient. Oh, very nice. That's a very short walk. I used to live in Queen's Park. If you come out of the station and turn right, uh, just down that road there as you, as, as it bends around. Oh, nice. Um, Amazing. Portnell, Portnell road. Yeah. Amazing. So we, we could have been neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Um, cool. So Nada, the way that we begin these podcasts is that I get you to tell a little bit of your story. Now, obviously we know each other quite well and I know that you've got a very interesting and varied background and, and everything that you've done up to where you are now, which is super interesting. But for the benefit of our listeners, mate, why don't you tell us a bit of your story? Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to know where to start the story, not to lose people and be wildly boring. But um, I suppose the overarching theme, as I like to think, is one of middle-class guilt. <laughs> um, I've been very, very lucky in life. I've had um, you know, the privilege of a good education and good health always thought that it's probably um, incumbent on people who have uh, more good luck to give a little bit more back as well. And so I suppose you could say that that, um, you know, that, that sort of idealism coursing through the veins led me to read philosophy at university, um, start my career in international development, working at a couple of think tanks here in London, also in New York and in Washington. Um, did some work with the Foreign Office as well and sort of coasting along feeling quite good about myself um, when a sort of concatenation of circumstances projected me into a world that I was very unfamiliar with um, and which didn't really feel like the epicenter of impact, namely entrepreneurship. Um, basically, my uh, my best pal of my youth, um, David, uh, had just dropped out of law school, was thinking about ways that he was going to hit the big time. And I thought, this is a guy that has skills you don't have. 
better jump on his coattails. <laughs> so, um, so I, I sort of, um, I suppose, trickled into my first, um, for the first part of my career, or I suppose the second part of my career, the first part of my entrepreneurial career, a little bit by chance, working in an industry that um, I didn't really have a great deal of context for. Um, we were basically doing um, technology-enabled quality control for um, enterprises who were looking to source hardware from China. Um, you can imagine that sort of it's quite a far stretch from working on civil society development in Iraq to um, you know having uh, having to figure out whether you know X Y or Z piece of computing equipment met a certain standard. But it was exciting. We learned a lot. Um, we ended up having um, some reasonably decent outcomes out of the business, and I think. We slightly caught the bug, as it were. Um, so we, um, our second business was perhaps a bit more ambitious and really sort of, I like to think, it really drove home how little we, know, we knew. Um, and it's, it's amazing how much more you learn in periods of failure than you do in periods of success in, in life. And I think that was one of the big sort of um, takeaways from that second part of my career was actually that um, you do need lucky breaks uh, in business to really kind of um, scale heights and, and, you know, you need lucky breaks and of course you need a degree of skill and we lacked both of those in that second business. So uh, while we shone quite brightly for a little while, um, it ended up going quite badly. Um, and uh, in 2010 or 11, I was just about to get married. Um, as I like to say, my wife had seen a lot of bust and not a lot of boom. So she made um, the quite sensible call that, uh, that I should do something a little bit less risky um, in the kind of early part of our, our marriage and, you know, um, aspiring to have children and all of those kinds of things. In 2011, um, I set up the precursor business to what I do now, um, a technology consulting or co-creation firm looking at ways in which emerging technologies, which is something that I've become more familiar with through my second startup, um, could basically be applied to, um, I guess, industrial transformation opportunities in slower to move sectors. It was just something that I knew a little bit about having, having um, done that work before. And, you know, I have no background in healthcare, but in, in the world of consulting, and, and you may know a little bit about this, in the world of agency, when people want to know if you're any good, they don't ask if you're any good, they ask who you've worked for. And then if you can flash the right credentials, you're in. It just happened that our first clients were the NHS and a pharma company. And um, hey presto, suddenly we became a healthcare company. So I, I ended up in healthcare um, very, very serendipitously. And um, I suppose the most serendipitous thing was that in 2016, my now co-founders, Boo Hay and Gareth Parks, um, who are respectively clinical leads for gastroenterology at King's and at the Royal London, approached my consulting firm with some ideas about how they wanted to transform the patient experience in their hospitals. And in particular, they'd noticed um, that as they were treating patients with inflammatory bowel disease, which is um, characterized by unpredictable cycles of relapse and remission, because that cadence of disease didn't match in any way the way that care was delivered, care being delivered in an episodic, sort of routine, 
and entirely predictable way. That kind of unpredictability of disease and predictability of model of care just didn't fit very well. And the result of it was quite sort of significant inefficiency in the way that they were delivering care, but also a series of unmet needs for patients who needed a more responsive, reactive, personalized way of interacting with their clinical teams and receiving the support that they needed. So that's kind of the, the, the background. I mean, we started working together in 2016. Um, you know, we spent a couple of years building an evidence base um, to show that what we were doing was effective and that there was demand for it. And in particular, we did a study at King's where we found that indeed patients who were on our more digitally enabled um, pathway were being seen about 47% less than patients that were on the kind of traditional pathway. Um, unsurprisingly, patients really liked the kind of digitally enabled model of care because it meant that they weren't showing up at hospital when they were well. Specifically, 85% of patients said that they would trade the kind of um, the old model for the new model, as it were, and that gave us quite a bit of confidence to kind of press ahead and explore further. But I think, you know, as I, as I look at it, um, or as I look back at it, the thing that was most surprising was that we found that patients who were using our intervention showed up to A&E 50% less than the patients who weren't. And we tried to understand why that was the case. I mean, you know, um, a remote monitoring tool probably shouldn't um, have, well, we weren't expecting that impact. And as we looked at it a little bit further, we realized that we were actually addressing a health anxiety problem. You know, for people whose diseases come and go unpredictably, there's a kind of pressing need to see a doctor as quickly as possible. And an inflexible model of care where you can't get an appointment quickly, you end up showing up at A&E. But if you have a digital way of communicating with your clinician, actually, it alleviates some of that anxiety that you're experiencing as a result of, um, as a result of the, the prospective relapse. And I guess that observation set us off on a path to focus more on unmet mental health needs for the patient populations that we were looking for. And I guess as part of that same process and as part of looking at ways in which um, what we were building could be applied more widely and have a broader impact, we decided to extend out the offering to other inflammatory or immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, which are also characterized by relapse and remission, and also some other rare diseases, again, characterized by relapse and remission. So in a way, you could say it started um, looking at ways to improve the pathway for IBD patients. And over time, um, the vision kind of expanded to look at a range of unmet needs for a broader patient population. And that's what we do today. Wow. And what a story that is, right? And it, it, it characterized, I think, the thread that pulls this all together from both your personal and then the company perspective. I've written, I've just written the word journey. And it seems to me that you have been somebody that has appreciated the learning by doing and specifically, as you put it, learning by failing was what you preferred. It seems that through that, what you describe as middle-class guilt, begin with slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I imagine actually very real, um, is that you've almost felt this, what would I call it, a compulsion to not necessarily play the safe route. And I think that's given you the opportunity to then do so much learning and end up at a point, and it's interesting when, when you got to the sort of tech consultancy bit as well, that even there, you didn't you weren't necessarily, perhaps it was from the learning of your previous 
companies and, and experiences, but you, you didn't go into that tech consulting with a fixed definition of exactly what you were going to do. It almost seems like you appreciated that learning by doing and learning from failing is the right way to go. So we're going to try doing this. We're going to be sector agnostic. We've ended up in this because I've got the most pull from the market. And then actually now, you know, the, the market's pulling us. So let's double down and let's really do this. And then Boo and Gareth come in and these clinical leads and, and all the rest of it. And it seems... It seems that that learning journey is a thread that that comes through even the way that you've got to where you are with ampersand. But I suppose talking about the personal bit first, would you agree then that you that you think learning by doing is the best way to do things for you, and and that you didn't necessarily gravitate towards those more safer routes? I think learning by doing is is definitely something that you know. Um, I think characterizes most inquisitive lives right um I, I think everybody has that experience i would say slightly differently actually i i've found um that i've made progress by um surrounding myself with people that know better than i do uh mm. i suppose if i think about um you know um partnering up with somebody much more commercial than me initially someone much more clinical than me in this business really you know um it's you know the, the privilege is working with amazing people and of course trial and error is one of the methodologies so let's talk about ampersand then and let's talk about those early days and i, I tend to do this with a lot of guests in figuring out kind of exactly how this developed you started as a consultancy your first clients are the nhs and pharma and then you meet Boo and Gareth, who have displayed this clinical need for something, which I, I guess the consultancy was then doing something for. You've now morphed into having this, you know, my IBD and those products. So talk to me about those those early days and how how I guess it turned from an, an idea into reality. Yeah, totally. Um, so I mean, I suppose there's a couple of things to say on that front. Um, the first is that I happen to have a patient perspective on inflammatory disease. Um, I could see from personal experience and the experience of people close to me that the work that Bill and Gareth were doing was important and had potential um, on a, a on a different scale to perhaps just the the two hospitals that they were initially focused on. Um, you know, uh, the way that Boo and Gareth kind of got started was that they were connected by Crohn's and Colitis UK, the national charity for the condition that they're focused on, who have been unbelievably supportive throughout our journey. Um, they uh, raised some medical educational goods and services um, funding, some grant funding to develop the kind of first version of the platform. Um, you, you will have seen at the end of the day, I think most people in our industry will have seen that there's a huge amount of really noble grant funded work out there. But unless that, that work has a path to sustainability or to viability, when the grant money dries up, it becomes quite difficult to progress the, progress the proposition. And, you know, I had worked with by then, you know, um, probably half a dozen um, fabulous projects at the Christie, at King's, at several other hospitals. And, you know, I had seen firsthand the relationship between the availability of funding and the ability to kind of continue developing a, um, a digital platform. And, you know, one of the things that I think is 
perhaps a learning that I had from from previous work, and which you know um, sounds very obvious now, is that um, patients are consumers, and as consumers, they have an expectation of quality and of improvement and of delight that doesn't really fit very well with one-off funding, one-time building, you know, all of those kinds of things. At the end of the day, what we really wanted to do was to find a way in which we could make our platform a constant source of renewing delight for our patient population, because we knew that if we couldn't provide that, we'd lose engagement, we'd have high attrition, and at the end of the day, we would fail to meet our impact objectives, which I think is what drives Boo and Gareth and, and I to do what we do. So in a way, there's a, there's a very sort of um, profound relationship between a commercialization strategy and the impact objectives that we have. So, you know, um, we did, uh, as I mentioned, you know, we did a surveillance study at King's. We evidenced uh, patient need for what we were doing. We showed the kind of health economic benefits. Um, and that provided us with a very, very good springboard to um, commercialize further within, within the NHS. You know, I mean, one massive take home for me is the importance of generating evidence early in a digital health business, because whoever you're working with, um, they want to know that what they're taking up is going to have an impact, or at least they need to be able to show that they took a risk with you because they expected an impact. And it's not to say that every deployment of every piece of digital health technology has, has an impact, but you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of stuff out there. And how do you say between these hundred different ways of transforming our patient care, I choose this one or those two and not the others. Ultimately, it has to be on the basis of expectation about what's going to happen. I want to jump in here and and talk about a really important point that you've just raised, which is obviously generating evidence. Now, plenty of startups in digital health, people in digital health, leaders in digital health talk about this and do this to varying degrees. And I think that's the point, varying degrees. I think it's interesting that you guys noted that the current model of care for inflammatory bowel disease doesn't match actually what the disease is and what it does to people. I think ultimately that is a really interesting and important place to start this in the sense that we haven't quite got it, I suppose, that the one size of outpatients doesn't fit all or indeed community care or primary, whatever you want to call it, right? It doesn't fit the way that inflammatory bowel disease is. Now, you've obviously got this new paradigm, this new way of thinking, this idea of the way to change things, this, this as you called it, um, a constant source of renewing delight, which will sit in somebody's pockets that will give them that value on a more continual basis. And then you say, and you said it before, that you talked about spending a couple of years building an evidence base. You talk about health economics, you talk about analyzing patient need, making sure that exists. I want to ask you, I suppose, when you say it's important to generate evidence early. There are so many people listening that will want to know what exactly that means. What was good enough? What, what evidence was good enough early, i.e. before really yeah. 
you've kind of got it and proved it and able to do a clinical trial and RCTs and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, the, the need for evidence will change as you, as you grow and develop. But how did you go about that initially and early? Well, I mean, you know, um, and herein uh, lies, um, you know, a, uh, the critical point, I guess, uh, by working with people that knew better than I did. And Boo and, uh, <laughs> and Gareth are yep. both, um, you know, very accomplished academic clinicians. Um, they knew not only what was important to their hospitals or to their trusts from the perspective of persuading the trust to take a punt, they also knew the importance of credibility amongst their peer group. And, and I, obviously, coming into, into um, a research-oriented industry for the, for the first time, perhaps, or at least being product-side in a research-oriented industry for the first time, um, you know, certainly um, learned from their, from their perspectives there. There's so many different types of evidence and so many ways in which you can kind of encapsulate effectiveness or, or you know, the, the idea of effectiveness. So for us, um, you know, there's a component of what we do, which is about um, saving the NHS money, um, increasing capacity, all of those kind, you know, reducing referral to treatment times, all of those kind of, um, I guess, uh, let's say, systemic improvements that digital can have. Um, but... I think that I see that as being quite different to um, sort of the second part of what we're trying to do, which is much more about um, improving quality of life and overall well-being for our patients. Um, you know, I suppose the um, you, you you raised, I guess, a point about the kind of transitioning of the business through um, through different stages. And I think for us, one of the things that I, I guess one of the one of the one of the core parts of a business like ours finding its place is seeing how it sits alongside what's already out there in the most complementary way. And so when you look at the drugs that are available for inflammatory diseases, the ones to treat the primary symptoms are broadly speaking amazing. I mean, biologic drugs are so effective at treating primary symptoms that very often um, clinicians and clinical teams feel that um, as long as the patient gets diagnosed and put on the pathway at the right time, that kind of it's, it's almost job done. And one of the things that we found that was super duper interesting was that 90% of, and this is, I guess, one of the things that came up in that initial research phase when we were trying to identify where the needs lay 90% of gastroenterology departments don't have a clinical psychologist on board. So really, unless you're in that lucky 10%, the way that you're going to get treated typically, and this is not because of you know, clinicians not getting it, it's because they don't have the tools to do anything about it. It's going to be focused on those primary symptoms. Um, one of the key points for us then was to evidence their unmet mental health needs that existed. And we've done that in a number of ways. And I guess, you know, you asked about what does research look like? So, you know, research at the one end um, with formal RCTs, we have a couple of those ongoing, um, you know, take a very long view on the effectiveness of uh, a digital health intervention um, in respect of 
as I say, quality of life, outcomes, but also um, system type changes. At the other end of the spectrum, and I think one of the things that digital companies can do, which is a real luxury that I don't really see being within the gift of, say, pharma companies, is that we can move fast to build an informal evidence base as well. And, you know, when you're talking to patients about whether they feel um, that their health anxiety is being addressed, you don't really need to do a randomized control trial to establish that. You need to be able to um, kind of assess the landscape in a different way and present your evidence in a different way. And we've been very lucky to be able to do that because we have a direct line of communication to 30,000 patients, right? So I guess at one end of the spectrum, you've got the RCTs. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got kind of much more informal research and then a range of things that sit in the middle, um, service evaluations like we're doing now at a number of sites, um, you know, kind of um, things like um, as part of Tech Force, which was this um, NHSX and um, Department of Health and Social Care initiative around COVID-19, um, you know, there was a kind of reporting um, piece to that that required us to structure our informal research in a formal way and report on it and so on and so forth. So I think there's a huge spectrum of, of evidence generation opportunities out there. And in a way, it's about picking what's fit for purpose for different specific needs. And I love there that you've acknowledged your role as the entrepreneur, which is essentially to build the right team to get those people that know more than you on that team to tell you that stuff. But ultimately, you're also the one selling them that vision. You're selling them the idea that they can build the future if they just tell you what it needs to be, or indeed the other way around, because you having the patient perspective and being able to work that through with them, as well as then the ability to, to sort of have, have a hand in building the technology and certainly the vision there. I think that is so important. And also you've gone and got the level that what I would say is is that key stakeholder. I think whenever you're trying to sell something, particularly in the NHS, but I suppose in any corporate sense, there's always going to be a key person to convince or a key level at which to convince who can influence both upwards and downwards to make sure the sale happens, but also the adoption happens. And it seems to me that I've spoken to Gareth, I spoke to him this week, um, he seems he seems someone who would be very influential, both from his position, you know, just for the letters before and after his name, I suppose, but also he he is somebody that that's, that comes across as a leader that can galvanise, that can that can understand and and do all those things. And I think getting someone like that on board is just going to pay so many dividends for whatever investment you need to give out as an entrepreneur, actually, when you whatever it is. I think that makes so much sense. From a, f- from, from a business perspective, and frankly, just the importance of that clinical perspective and, and the access that they can gain to the decision makers and influencing those decisions and giving their vision of what needs to happen. And it means that with all that buying, you can drive a business forward, which I think is so important. My question now is around what Ampersand actually is. And I think there's two elements here from everything you've said so far, which is that on one hand, it's the constant source of renewing delight in a patient's pocket. On the other side of things, it's benefiting clinicians because of a new model of care that it's developing. So can you talk to those two things and tell me what Ampersand is from a patient perspective? And then from a clinical perspective. Yeah, definitely. Um, just want to say I completely agree with you, by the way. Uh, having, having <laughs> um, when you are 
um, you know, a vulgar and lightweight salesman like I am, it's really useful to have substantive clinicians who can, you know, um, be your co-founders and kind of lead you down the, the right path. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And, and you know, I've got a lot to say about um, influencing decision makers in the NHS as well. We can come back to that maybe a little bit later. But if I very briefly kind of try to characterize how we see Ampersand Health today, I guess we see ourselves on the one hand as having um, a core remote monitoring proposition for clinicians and their trusts. Um, that remote monitoring proposition basically um, uses a series of objective or near objective data points to expose to a clinician how a patient is doing between appointments. What that means is that the clinician can then decide how and where to focus care for the greatest impact. Because as we all know, um, capacity is constrained, particularly in the NHS, but I think in all health systems, long-term conditions place a burden on the system that is, you know, it's going to be very, very difficult to um, to kind of match up, especially in the current ways of working. Um, so by exposing, for example, behavioral data, symptom data, blood test information, uh, biomarker information to clinicians in near real time, even when the patient isn't present, we allow them to say, yes, I can see that that patient has a clinical need, I'll focus care there, but that patient doesn't have a clinical need at the moment, and you know what? Let them enjoy life. Um, because I think from a patient perspective, there's not much that's more annoying than having to take half a day off work, you know, pitch up at the hospital, wait around for a couple of hours to get 30 seconds with your doctor who's like, oh, you're doing fine. Fine. Goodbye. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that's um, it's a win-win. That remote monitoring proposition delivers a win-win. And it's amazing how um, COVID-19 has crystallized that that's the acknowledgement of that fact in a very broad swathe of the clinical community who um, primarily because of resistance within their organizations rather than because they didn't get it, but primarily because of resistance within their own organizations have had a tough time implementing some of these ideas over the last four or five years, but who have grasped the opportunity to do, to do so in light of the fact that they have to move their patients to virtual now because of COVID-19. So, yeah, remote monitoring proposition facing, facing clinicians. And on, on the patient side of things, we see ourselves, um, I suppose, as being um, in some fashion a digital medicine or a digital therapy. Uh, we use tools and techniques from behavioral science and data science to create personalized self-care pathways that are shown to improve quality of life. Um, a series of mental health symptoms. And excitingly, we have some very early signals that we're exploring further that actually maybe um, our approach leads to better outcomes as well, better, better sort of um, disease-related um, outcomes, which would be hugely, hugely exciting. Probably not entirely surprising to a lot of people who are ahead of the curve in the space, but I suppose to be one of the companies that's, that's doing the interesting work is, is really exciting. I see us, I see a spectrum of digital health interventions in our space that go from the kind of disease specific at one end to the generalist at the other end. And there's fabulous examples 
um, or, or there are examples of fabulous companies at both ends of the spectrum. And, you know, for example, I look at Patient Knows Best as a great example of something that meets a huge range of patient and clinician needs. And because it is a single implementation across an entire hospital population, um, I can see why that has enormous buy-in from IT teams and um, you know others for whom the single deployment proposition is so attractive. At the other end of the spectrum, and in terms of disease specificity, um, you know I see companies um, like Ampersand, um, like uh, Sleep, like like Big Health, like Bold Health, so on and so forth, who um, you know have that disease focus, and as a result, are able to kind of drill down deeper in a way that meets the needs of clinicians and patients, perhaps a little bit more than the generalist model. I think, you know, when you have a condition, you would typically want something that was focused on your need states. And I think when you are a clinician looking after a patient population, the more granular you can get, the better you're going to be able to do your job. So I think there's a bit of push and pull there. And and in a way that um, both ends of the spectrum have a great uh, they, they have a great impact potentially, but the problem statement is how do you go about procuring those different things? Who holds the levers of procurement in the background in a trust? And as a result, um, can you actually get things, um, can you get consensus on procurement decisions in a way that really works? And one of our, one of our experiences um, pre-COVID was that disease specificity was unattractive to IT departments because they, and they ultimately saw it as being within their remit to determine what digital health interventions got implemented. Um, you know, we've seen a huge shift um, in, in our business as a result of COVID with decision-making being much less centralized with um, different teams playing uh, a more sort of constructive and collaborative role perhaps in adopting a range of technologies. And sure, you know, um, some will work, some won't work, but, you know, the needs uh, needs must, as it were. And, and, and it's been really exciting to see um, a period of really rapid transformation or transition from a let's see what happens procurement mindset to let's give it a go procurement mindset, if that makes sense. And I've seen on LinkedIn recently that you guys have had a white paper out recently with um, a few findings and other bits and bobs. What's going on with that? Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I guess it comes back to the question you asked earlier about um, different types of evidence, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's kind of um, acceptable and what's not and what moves you forward and what doesn't. And I think um, for a company like us, we've always aspired to um, to develop our own kind of uh way of doing things, if you like. And one of the the great things that's come out of, on the one hand, um, building out the behavioral science competency within the company, but also bringing together a multidisciplinary team, um, clinicians, behavioral scientists, data scientists, academics, subject matter experts, is that, you know, we've we've kind of been able to slightly, um, I suppose, Put some put some structure and some rigor, or put a framework around um, the innovation work that we're doing. You know, it's I guess four or five years ago we were probably best described as an app company in some fashion or another, or or that was our, our product was an app. But as as the business has evolved and as we've been able to bring on this more sort of multidisciplinary approach, what we've come to realize is that the app is the vehicle 
the intervention is actually the behavioral science framework, the subject matter, um, sort of the, the content that subject matter expert, experts inject into it. And, you know, I think as I've left, sort of surveyed the digital therapeutics landscape, I see um, a lot of companies building robust evidence bases that let apps work, which is great. I think that is, it's important. But what we wanted to do with the white paper was to say, the app is the app. Actually, it's a unique approach to developing behavioral science and data science-based therapeutics that's of key interest to us. And so we've been lucky to, um, I guess, you know, bring people around the company who've been able to craft that into a kind of consistent and impactful way of working that means that today, whether we're talking about inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis, you know, atopic dermatitis, or hopefully down the line, multiple sclerosis, uh, we have a way of working and a series of inputs and outputs that are scalable and that allow us to kind of, um, I guess in a way, sweat the work that we do a little bit harder. Um, for example, you know, we're working with some experts in acceptance and commitment theory at the moment to develop um, some therapeutic content for people that experience pain as a result of their um, long-term inflammatory condition. And initially, we developed that for patients with rheumatoid arthritis, but we found that within the same framework, we could use that content to help people who are experiencing pain from their inflammatory bowel disease as well. And so I think what the white paper does is it sets out that framework, the way that we're approaching it, and hopefully makes the case for scalability in some fashion or another. Yeah, and I think, I suppose what I really like about that as a reflection of your company, and, and therefore I guess what I like about your company, I've, I've written the word modern, but what I mean by that is, you know, you're acknowledging the fact that the app is the front door, it's not the business. And I think that's the whole point, you know, that you've got so much in the background. When you look at the content of what the background actually is, it's behavioral scientists. It's acknowledging the mental health impact of long-term chronic conditions. It's acknowledging, in, you know, by definition, then the anxiety and addressing, most importantly, the health anxiety of people with long-term chronic conditions. And, you know, you've mentioned their acceptance and commitment theory and looking at things like that. It seems that you're taking a very, very holistic view to what treating, and I use that word cautiously, a chronic condition actually means or inflammatory condition actually means. And I think for, for those with inflammatory conditions, and perhaps this comes actually from your position in the company as somebody who understands it from a patient perspective, but also therefore your hand on the vision of the company, which is that you acknowledge because you live it, that the treatment of inflammatory and long-term conditions is more than just mesalazine or you know whatever it is that, that's, that's going to solve the symptom. Actually, the condition, the disease, whatever you want to call it, like, it is more all-encompassing than that. It is the physical health. It is the mental health. It is about prevention. It is about education. It is about empowering patients to feel that they are in control rather than it's the condition controlling them. And I think it just seems to me that with your hand on the rudder here, you've got to a point 
where it, it is all of those things. And it would be extremely reductive to call this an app. It isn't an app. It's ludicrous to suggest it is. It's so much more than that. And when you look at even the, the clinical leadership of the company with you know, clinical leaders and, and clinical directors of gastroenterology departments, and, and those are the people that also have a hand on this. It seems like it seems best in class from, from a team point of view but, and holistic in terms of what you're actually offering. And I suppose it's no accident. Right. It, it's all very, it all seems very deliberate, which in, get, in part is, is so impressive to me because I know the complexity of those diseases. I've seen it. I've treated those patients. I've spoken to those patients. I've seen them in, in the multiple appointments they come to primary care with. I've seen them in the gastro clinics where they show up and they're told to disappear two minutes later because they're absolutely fine. And then the next person that comes in who needs 40 minutes can't get it because they're running behind and I've seen all of those problems and I can appreciate how what you're doing has a hand in solving so many of them. But what also doesn't escape me is how hard, how much hard work that is. And I think for that reason, I think what you're doing is extremely impressive managing to fight on so many fronts, I think really is testament to, to the leadership of your company, but also everybody behind the scenes, those behavioral scientists, the people that deal with procurement, like all of those all of those different levels, the, you know, the developers, the, the everything that, that goes together to, to, to make this what it is. I think, I think the future sounds very bright for you guys because you're, and you, you referenced it as well, right? You're part of a group of companies doing this stuff for the first time. You are part of the 20 companies that are going to be first through the door in all of this stuff. And I think, You've acknowledged people like Bold Health, you can argue are a bit of competition, but actually why not? You know, why not rising tide raises all ships, right? And I think it's nice to hear you talk about people like that. And, you know, I know Elena and 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 those guys and what they're doing is awesome. So I think there's so much about this which is impressive. And I think the future does sound bright for you guys. That's super kind. I mean, you know, I put it down to working with with great colleagues, to be honest. I'm mm. very, very lucky to to have um, brilliant people around me who who compensate for my shortcomings um, <laughs> um you know i don't know if we have time to to talk about it but um i just wanted to mention that you know a lot of what you described is is totally right and uh, everything that you said is totally right for us in a way there is also the acknowledgement that every patient's experience of inflammatory disease is different and that the pursuit of health and happiness is a very personalized activity in some way or another. So um, I guess that kind of um, that kind of focus, I suppose, on helping people to find their way to wellness is where I think our big sort of challenge moving forward is. We've got you know the rudiments. You're right, and thank you for saying such nice things about what we what we've done so far. We're, you know, at the beginning of a journey and the next bit that makes this, I think, that takes us to the next level is, is around making sure that each patient with the unique experience that they have gets that delight from whatever we're able to bring to the table. That's a lovely full circle reference to the journey as well. So I like that. Um, Sonada, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. The way that we end these podcasts is I'm just going to hand back over to you to kind of summarize a bit about Ampersand and what you're up to. And to close us out with any asks that you might have of our audience, and we get lots of people listening to this from 
obviously the the investment side of the world and the the clinical side of the world, the corporate side of the world, the pharma side of the world, and also the patient side of the world too. I think there's so many people that can benefit from this. So if you do have any asks of our audience, then by all means, take it away. To be honest, James, I haven't really come into this with an ask prepared, but uh, you know, on a slightly sort of off the cuff basis, I think you know the journey that we've been on is such an exciting journey. Um, it's one that, as you kind of alluded to before, only becomes better the more that we're able to collaborate with other people. Um, you know, we don't have all the answers. We're starting to find some of them, but we know there are people out there that have great ideas around improving care for people with inflammatory disease, um, around improving treatments for people with inflammatory disease. We want to be part of an ecosystem, and I suppose a slightly off-the-cuff ask is if there are people out there that listen to this, that think, you know what, I've got something to say about inflammatory conditions, we'd love to hear from them. We'd love to look at ways to partner up. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, James. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.